Welcome to this talk from Emmaus Road Church in Guildford, UK. Thank you for joining us on the journey, wherever you are in the world. You can find out more about who we are and what we're up to at EmmausRoad.com. Great. Are you okay? Excellent. Um, so this is the last in our Supernatural series, and it's been uh, so encouraging. I don't think I can't remember when we last did a, a series where we've had such encouragement, uh, such great feedback. It's been amazing seeing people stepping out more in the everyday supernatural, taking a few more risks and definitely seeing a few more things happen uh, as a result. And it seems appropriate to be concluding the series by looking at worship on uh, Palm Sunday with the riot of celebration that takes place as Jesus rides into uh, Jerusalem. Ultimately, this stuff is all about him. The gifts of the Spirit are not ultimately about the power they reveal, but the person they reveal. Ultimately, it is about uh, worship. It's all about Jesus and knowing him and loving him with all our hearts. And I do believe that uh, today God uh, wants to bring some of us back to some of that first love, to reignite, reawaken some of our passion for Jesus as we step into Holy Week and to awaken uh, worship in our hearts by revealing who he is to us in new ways. So um, Sammy's already uh, read some of it. We're going to read it again. Uh, Matthew chapter 21. This is uh, the story. In fact, the uh, Palm Sunday story, the triumphal entry, uh, is in all four Gospels. It's one of those few, uh, uh, relatively few uh, bits of the Bible that uh, all four gospel writers say this is essential. And uh, so we're going to look at Matthew 21, and we're going to read verses 1 to 11. Jesus comes to Jerusalem as king. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. By the way, this is Jesus doing admin. You noticed that. Any of you thought Jesus never did admin? He does some admin here. Um, this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter Zion, see your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and they did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowd that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. And when, when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. And then Jesus goes and he uh, 
cleanses the temple. Uh, it's a great, dynamic, explosive moment. A beautiful story, a riot of worship and celebration with mind-blowing significance that can easily be missed by those of us sitting here in the 21st century in the Western uh, world. Uh, my sons both love video gaming, and uh, apparently I'm terrible at it. I shoot the, I shoot the wrong people. I, I actually, this is the, the, literally the most embarrassing thing I could share with you today. I get car sick playing video games. Is that, how pathetic is that? So I, it's, it's too much for me. But my sons are into video gaming, and they tell me that developers of video games will often put little secret messages, little keys uh, hidden within the game, and these are called Easter eggs, I'm told. And um, in this passage, we have some significant Easter eggs, some hidden meanings, some hidden messages that uh, I just want to uh, let you know about because I think they are encouraging, enlightening, and exciting. The first uh, Easter egg, or little cluster of Easter eggs, comes in the very first verse that we read. We could easily gloss over it, uh, but it is to do with geography, three place names that would have been very significant to the first readers uh, of Matthew's Gospel. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives. We'll stop there. First 13 words. We've had three place names. Jerusalem, Mount of Olives, and Bethphage. And we think, fine, nice, little sort of GPS moment. But this is actually quite profound. Firstly, the Mount of Olives. Zechariah, in chapter 14, uh, the prophet predicts that one day the Lord will stand on the Mount of Olives of olives, and it will be the place from which he brings in his kingdom, and we uh, begin to see the fulfillment of his purposes. So when uh, Matthew's original Jewish readers hear Mount of Olives, it's loaded with meaning for them. This is a moment that is politically and eschatologically charged. And then we read that he is approaching Jerusalem. And of course, that is incredibly significant for them. This is a messianic moment of triumph and tragedy. Triumph because we have the Davidic king entering into the city of David to, as it were, be enthroned, but also a moment of great tragedy because we know, don't we, that he is also the Pascal lamb who is going to be sacrificed. The crowds crying, uh, Hosanna will soon be crying, crucify. He is entering Jerusalem where he will be killed. And we think about that as we prepare to enter our uh, Holy Week and uh, this Easter season. And so uh, the people, the crowds, uh, they, they understand the significance of this moment and they go crazy. They start to worship and cry out, Hosanna. Worship just sort of erupts. And notice where it erupts. It erupts outside the walls of Jerusalem amongst ordinary people in ordinary places, not in the holy city, not in the temple, not regulated and ordered by the religious officials. 
This is anarchic. It is chaotic. And so we read in other Gospels, the religious leaders saying, make them shut up. This is inappropriate. It is irreverent. And Jesus says this really cool thing. He says, if they shut up, the rocks themselves are going to cry out. There's a, a sense, not just of people worshiping, but of creation itself bubbling up with amazement at Jesus riding into Jerusalem. It is religiously messy. It's also politically risky because of the messianic significance of the moment. And the Pharisees have learned to accommodate the Roman Empire, the pagan power. And they've got this nice little thing going. And they're kind of important and wealthy and respected within this system that is accommodating the empire. And this is all getting threatened by this upstart from Galilee with the masses increasingly behind him. And he's riding into Jerusalem. So this is politically as well as religiously a dangerous moment. And they make, say, make the crowd shut up. I have an increasing sense that then and now the culture is primed for Christ's coming. There is a sense way beyond even our religious systems where uh, our culture is increasingly crying out in worship even when they don't know who they are worshipping. And Jesus says to us, have you got eyes to see what I am doing? Can you perceive the ways in which I am moving? It's messy and it's risky. Let me give you a few examples. Today, the BBC released a poll. And it's extraordinary. They've taken one of the most encouraging and positive polls I've ever seen as a, as a Christian. And, and they've made it feel negative, but it's actually incredibly positive. And uh, good old BBC. Um, the poll that came out this morning reveals 17% of the population in this country believe the biblical account of the resurrection word for word. <laughs> they think that's terrible. I think that's amazing. Don't you think that's amazing? 17% of the people in your street, or in your family, <laughs> your work colleagues, believe the Easter resurrection account word for word. But apparently it's bad news. It's not good news. Go figure. 50% of the nation believe in the resurrection. 9% of non-religious people, people who say, I'm not a Christian, I'm not into religion, I don't know if any of us, they believe in the resurrection. This is just out today. So way beyond, I mean, at best 10% of the population is in church today, but it's probably less, than, uh, it, 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 yeah, is in church today, but it's probably a bit less than that. But 17%. Almost double the number out there believe the Easter story word for word. This is a great opportunity to be a little more courageous with our friends to demand more of strangers as we just heard. The culture seems primed to receive the coming king intellectually, increasingly. And I could give you so many examples, but it would get boring. Uh, of, uh, for example, major philosophers who is saying that to believe in God is utterly, utterly credible. Interesting, when you talk to Amy or Ewing, who sometimes comes and preaches here and heads up the Ravi Zacharias ministry throughout Europe, 
And she says, it's really weird because our popular media right now thinks that atheism is the thing, but in intellectual and academic circles, uh, it's a completely different scenario, and that's what's going to trickle down eventually as people who are studying at Oxford and Cambridge and elsewhere now eventually end up to shape the media. It's the middle-aged ones who are educated under a different system who are currently determining the way that we think. So one example that you may know, Anthony Flew was generally considered the leading philosopher of atheism. And then in 2007, he released a book entitled There Is a God, <laughs> How the World's Most Notorious Atheist Changed His Mind. And they were absolutely furious with him. Culturally, we see a priming of the culture towards uh, the coming of Jesus. It, th this stuff is not revival, but it just creates the space into which it gets a little bit easier to declare uh, Jesus Christ. Look at movies, for example. Just in the last few months, we've had silence. One of the most disturbing and profound explorations of genuine religious faith that I've seen in a long time. And what was really interesting was how many of the critics said things like, this is a phenomenal film, and if I believed in, in Christianity, I think I would really think this is one of the greatest films of all time. It's really weird because they didn't say that with any other film that had any, had any other form of religious or philosophical outlook. Well, if I shared that belief, I'd think it was a good film, but somehow with Christianity, it's now okay to stand up and say, well, I don't believe all of that stuff, so I don't think it's a good film, but actually it's a phenomenal film. Or you look at The Shack, which is doing very, very well around the world, uh, made by Mark Hazeldean's brother. Uh, Mark's a member of this, uh, this church, probably here somewhere uh, now. And, uh, um, you know, is, is, uh, millions and millions of people, Beyonce and others, have watched it in America. In, in Brazil, it's the best-selling book of all time. And so the film's doing very well over here. It's just about to be released here. Uh, it's, it's an exciting moment. Netflix, on March the 31st, released its new most expensive uh, uh, film, and it's called The Discovery, and it is exploring life after death and what would happen if actually we suddenly discovered scientifically there is life after death. And so our culture is primed with the conversations and the wonderments uh, that might well lead to faith. So Jesus is... Mount of Olives, he's moving into Jerusalem, the crowd's erupting in worship. And the other uh, bit of geography we have here is Bethphage. This is uh, where Jesus is approaching from. Now you may know Bethphage literally means the house of unripe figs. Catchy, I know. This is colossally significant, okay? Because in the Old Testament... Fig trees were one of the main ways in which the house of Israel is represented. And if we were to scroll just forward a little bit in this chapter, just after Jesus has cleared out the temple, we read in verse 18, early in the morning as Jesus was on his way back to the city, he was hungry, seeing a fig tree by the road. He went up to it but found nothing on it except leaves. And then he said to it, may you never bear fruit again. Immediately the tree withered. And when the disciples saw this, they were amazed. How did the fig tree wither so quickly, they asked. And Jesus replied, truly I tell you, if you have faith and do not doubt, not only can you do what was done to the fig tree, but also you can say to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and it will be done. If you believe, you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. 
So the, the, the story begins in a place called House of Unripe Figs. Jesus rides into Jerusalem. Everyone goes crazy. Uh, he cleanses the temple. He then pops out of the city for the night. He's hungry and he curses this fig tree because it's not bearing fruit and it dies instantly. And then he says to the disciples, hey, if you pray, you can see stuff like this happen and mountains could be thrown to the sea. What's going on here? Well, there's a couple of things. Firstly, and it's just a fascinating little detail, when Jesus says, if you've got faith, elsewhere it says, as small as a mustard seed, you can make a mountain jump to the sea. He's referring to the mountain that is the mountain of the Lord, Jerusalem, the, the temple. Okay? We tend to say the mountain of cancer can be thrown to the sea. Well, maybe, but that's not primarily what it's saying. Jesus is saying, if you guys pray, if you have even the smallest seed, what you're going to see is the structures of religion, the structures of empire, the structures of dominance will be thrown into the sea. They'll be leveled off and a new era will begin. You have power in your prayers to change the authority structures in your workplace, in our cities, in our nations. Not just to pray, dear Jesus, please bless me tomorrow type prayers. Anyway, the fig tree thing. Jesus is sorry. I was just, it's too interesting not to throw that in, but it's not to do with the talk. But I just uh, um, listen. The fig tree thing. So Jesus is riding to Jerusalem from a place called the unripe figs, and he curses a fig tree for not being ripe. The symbolism here is this: that. Israel is not ready for his coming. Israel is not being fruitful. It is not ripe. And therefore, it is about to be cursed. There is a sense that a new Israel is going to be risen up. A new temple, a new Jerusalem, a new order is about to kick in. And so uh, we have here Jesus rebuking the fig tree and beginning his ride in a place called unripe figs. And so the challenge for each one of us on Palm Sunday uh, is clearly uh, this. Are you ready for Jesus? Are you expectant? Are you ripe? Is your life bearing fruit at the moment that Jesus comes to reign? It is so easy especially, dare I say, in a place like Guildford, to get comfortable with things as they are, to secretly hope that nothing changes, that no one rocks the boat, like the Pharisees who've accommodated the Roman Empire. You're paying off your mortgage. Your pension pot is filling up nicely. Your work is going well. Your house is insured. Your health is insured. Your life is insured. And you come to church, so your eternity is also insured. You're comfortable. But are you ripe? Are you ready for major disruption? <laughs> what if Jesus is going to mess it all up? What if he is going to upset the status quo and invert the system in which you are doing so well? This is good news of great consolation for the poor and bad news of great disruption for the rest of us. Are you ready? Are you bearing spiritual fruit? I know some of you are bearing material fruit. You're doing very well. But are you bearing spiritual fruit? Are you living in such a way as to transform the lives of others for the best? 
Are you leading people to Jesus? Are you praying for the sick? Are you an agent of the king coming home to his kingdom? Jesus comes to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. So, three places, Bethphage, unripe figs, Jerusalem, the Davidic city, and Mount of Olives, where the Messiah will reign. And the people get this, and they erupt in worship. And so we have this scene that is described as the triumphal entry. And that, too, is loaded with these video game Easter eggs. Because, you see, uh, it was the tradition of Caesar, of the emperor, that uh, when he won some big conquest, he would ride into a city and uh, he would have the slaves he had captured in front of him. And uh, by 20 BC, uh, so before the time of Christ, any kind of triumphal procession into a city was the sole privilege of the emperor. You couldn't just have any military officer doing it, only the emperor. It was that important. It is that symbolic. When you ride into a city in that kind of way, you're saying, I'm in charge. And um, the, the, the way that the, the, the emperors, the, the Caesars would do it is that uh, people would line the streets and they would cry, Hail Caesar! And he would ride a great stallion. You bet your bottom dollar he's going to choose the best horse he can find, the most impressive one. One of those ones that pictures, not paws, what do you call them? Hooves up like that. I'm a great equestrian. And as I said, the slaves will go ahead, but also the Praetorian guard would go before him. He would wear a crown of laurels around his head. He would then, once he entered the city, whichever city it was, he would ascend a throne where he would be flanked by the two most important people, generally his sons, or sometimes we read in historical accounts, it was his son-in-laws, one on each side of him. And then, get this, a bull would be sacrificed, and he would be offered a cup of red wine as a symbol of the blood that had been shed. They knew all this stuff. This is an Easter egg we have to discover. And he would always refuse the wine. I don't know why he just refused it. That was the thing. So get this, Jesus Christ starts to ride into the city of David and he very deliberately chooses himself, not the greatest stallion, but an ass, a donkey, which is the fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy in chapter 9, verse 9, as we read, it made it explicit, uh, say to daughter Zion, your king comes to you gentle not like Caesar, riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. This is a symbol of the prince of peace, humble, gentle, peaceful. What a contrast to the normal triumphal entries of empire. And Jesus has no slaves before him as he rides in, no praetorian guard going before him. But do notice, if we continue the triumphal entry and assume that it doesn't end when Jesus gets into Jerusalem, but continues all the way to the cross, we find that the narrative, the parallel, the parody continues because the Praetorian Guard, who were not leading the way when Jesus rode into Jerusalem, dress him up as a king, 
They understood the parallel. They put a fake robe on him, and instead of a crown of laurels, they put a crown of thorns on his head. And above his cross, they say what? King of the Jews. It's a sick joke. That is the truest thing anyone ever said. And instead of ascending a throne, he ascends a cursed cross. And instead of having his two sons, one on each side, he has two thieves. If this moment doesn't make you fall in love with Jesus and the way of Jesus, you need to go see a doctor now. I am done with the empire. I'm done with the power and the control and the pomposity and the using of people and the pyramids and the people pontificating about their own importance when the world is going to hell. I'm looking for a man of peace, a man of gentleness, a man or a woman of humility and kindness, and that is the one I will follow. That is where I see truth. That is where I see hope, reconciliation. Healing, hope for the nation. See, your king comes, humble and riding on a donkey. Don't give me Caesar with his laurels and his slaves and his stallion showing off about his own power. Give me the authority of the king of kings riding humble and gentle. And here's the deal. We can talk about that in socio-political terms, but let me talk to you at a very personal level. We so easily slip into the idea of God as emperor, God as king, God as president. And so we say, why isn't God speaking? Why isn't God doing anything in my life? Because we assume that he is the God of the hobnail boots, the God with a megaphone. And we don't get the great Jewish story, the Easter egg in the narrative which is this, he tiptoes, he whispers, he comes to you disguised as your own life. Do you have ears to hear and eyes to see and a heart soft enough to receive the king of kings if he comes to you as a child? As he comes to you as someone at your, in your workplace who is junior, not senior to you. This is the God of the scriptures. This is the anti-triumphal entry. And they didn't sacrifice a bull for Jesus. He himself was the sacrifice, but they did offer him the cup. And he did refuse the cup because he knew, I am indeed, as it says above my head, the king of Caesar. And in this moment, with these two thieves by my side, these are the first into my new regime in which the poor will be elevated and the mountain of Jerusalem will be thrown into the sea. There's an alternative value system that we've bought into as followers of the king on a donkey, which has a profound bearing on how we do family, how we do parenting, how we do business, how we do management, how we do everything. I heard about a businessman, the COO of a major organization, who was trying to work out what does this value system mean, and he realized that the directors of the organization all have parking spaces, limited space, parking space at their offices. 
And he thought, why is that that the directors should have the parking spaces? Shouldn't we just give the parking spaces to the people who most need the parking spaces? Who maybe, you know, they've got babies or they're not as fit and they need they can't walk as far and so he himself quietly has given himself a space and he's not making a big deal about it but down the road around the corner near the station has to walk five ten minutes every day and some of the newest employees get those parking spaces that used to be allocated for the directors isn't it a silly little thing can you imagine how upset people are about it I've worked for years for that parking space you did <laughs> And there we call the lie on the whole system. Followers of the king on the donkey are not controlling or dominating, but serving and apologizing. Men, we are so frequently taught that we must project power, not make ourselves vulnerable. <clears throat> we must understand the difference in authority and power. Power controls. Authority is given. And I've noticed that authority is mostly given to those who are strong enough to be weak, who are humble and gentle and merit that kind of respect. And so choose authority rather than power. Caesar had great power as he rode into the city, but Jesus had ultimate authority on that donkey, because he didn't need the stallion. He didn't need the slaves. So I want to show you a video. And this is one that we put out a week or two ago. Uh, it's the most extraordinary testimony from um, a woman called Helen uh, Berhain in Eritrea. And it is one of the most stunning examples of Christ's victory through meekness and suffering that I've seen, and also of the irrepressible and inexplicable worship that rises up beyond hype in our hearts when we truly know this Jesus. So Danny, this is the second of the two videos I gave you. Let's take a look at this and kill the lights if we can. The bus stopped, taxi stopped, just it's around 8 o'clock. The whole area is just quiet, so only you can hear my, my voice. So there are 600, 700 around people gathered. So when I start telling about the gospel, people they start crying. Even Muslims continue. Nobody strong stone just keep silent crying but the government they arrest me at the time. they say we must put her far from the city so she can't pray she can't do anything there is around 23 metal shipping containers when we came closer to the container, I saw young people, they started peeling us. The girl, he came and he opened one container, he pushed us in. The container not clean, it has small insects, so he starts 
crunch your body. We are asking, where is the light? So he said, no, there is no light. Um, in the night, it's extremely cold. Just I say, only we can do now, we sing. We have no toilet, we have no nothing. We sleep on the floor. I'm, I'm hungry to tell people about the gospel. The word of God, he have power. So I say, God, help me, give me word. So all the time I'm writing four, five letters every day for prisoners. I have been for two years now. They ask me, Helen, where is the Bible? So I told them, I have no Bible. So how how you remember this? You have been for two years, but you you write like this. So how you remember this? So I told them, it's in my mind. In your mind? So they start beating me a lot in my head and long beating. So after word he says, just go to the container. He kicked me. I stay the whole night. It's bloody pain. Early in the morning they came again. But now you must stop teaching guards. I told him, no, if somebody came around my container, I'm preaching. I can't stop preaching. So he started taking this uh, stick. When he beat you with this stick, you feel the whole your body fire. They know where is the nerves. So my body starts shaking by, by itself. Helen, you must stop preaching guards. So just I kept silent, his eyes red, and yeah, he beat me countless. Now it's the, the last one because I have no energy, I know. So just I start preparing myself to die. So uh, at last he's totally exhausted. So just I look at him, yeah, you did your job. Also I'm doing my job. So they took me to other container, the worst container. It's dark, I can't see anything. Just I'm standing and um, <laughs> start singing. Just doesn't matter. God gave me a new song. So just I'm singing the whole night. All the prisoners can hear. Thank you for everything, God. The bad toilet, cold, hot, everything because I, I love to worship him. He's my father. After the last uh, torture, I stay for eight months, but my situation just I'm very sick. They don't have enough medicine. They think I'm dying. They don't want you to die inside the prison. They don't want to take this kind of responsibility, so they send me home, but always security around me. I ask God, please, I need to leave this country. I stay for 10 months treatment. Within one month, the Danish government accepted me. I I'm, I'm start sing and write my own song.
Stunning, isn't it? They just couldn't stop her worshipping. There she was, locked up in that container, thinking she was going to die, being beaten. But she kept worshipping Jesus. That is not hype, that is hope. That is the Holy Spirit. That is maturity. That is irrepressible and inexplicable and beautiful. So I want us just to make some space to respond uh, now on this Palm Sunday as we step into Holy Week. You know, Paul uh, makes this triumphal entry uh, parallel explicit in 2 Corinthians 2, 14. He says, thanks be to God who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession and uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere. And so Paul is saying that we are those who have been captured and conquered by Christ, by the Prince of Peace, by the humble conqueror, by the one on the donkey. And uh, he leads us into the city. So as I was preparing, I I was, uh, it it just struck me, there's a number of uh, different uh, ways in which we might respond to this Palm Sunday message. The first is, I just think um, God wants to make a few rocks cry out as he rides into Jerusalem. That for some of us, he wants to break out of the religious boxes that perhaps we've put God in. Maybe, I mean, for the Pharisees, they wanted it all to be sort of nicely tied up in the temple on the hill. But maybe for you, it's the theater in Guildford on a Sunday morning. That's where the religious stuff happens. Or um, maybe God wants to just break into your normality in new ways. Can I suggest maybe just this next week? What about just listening to some worship music instead of other stuff? I'm not against the other stuff, but just to give a little space for your own heart to cry Hosanna in this uh, season. Maybe you need this coming week to seek out people and places, books and things that provoke your heart to worship. It's not magical. Remember, he tiptoes. He doesn't come in hobnail boots. He whispers. He doesn't use a megaphone. Go seek out those people and places that will help you to worship. God does 10,000 miracles a day in your life, and if you're lucky, you see three of them. Let's pray this week that he opens our eyes to see five, (laughs) just to see a few more, to live with greater gratitude. If Helen could be in that container worshiping God, for the hot and the cold, and surely we can worship God for his many, many blessings in our lives. And this thing of, um, uh, of the rocks crying out, I, some of us here, we have creative gifts, and we are uh, called, if you like, to lead worship outside of Jerusalem. I believe the Lord wants to honor and to anoint that gifting that you have afresh to lead people who don't even know Jesus yet in worship. For some of us, he wants to, I believe, awaken new love, to capture old hearts anew. We are a little bit like the unripe fig tree, if we're honest, all potential and no product. 
you know, all faith and very little fruit. And in all his grace, he, he's saying to us, come on, I, I, I'm on the move. I'm coming. I, I'm, not, I, I'm not distant. I'm not absent. I'm coming. Now get ready. Get fruitful. Put first things first. Be ready for me. Don't be like the unripe fig tree. I just wondered, too, whether there's one or two people uh, here today who um, God is calling you to follow in the footsteps of this humble king in humility. The Bible is very clear that um, you've got two choices in life. You can either humble yourself or let God humble you. <laughs> and and it, it, the Bible is very clear it's much better to do it yourself than wait for God to do it to you. Humble yourself, the Bible says, and God will raise you up. But if you go about arrogant, you will eventually be humbled. Because you are not that great. And so the invitation of the Spirit as we contemplate the humility of God on Palm Sunday, and we could think about Philippians 2, how God continually chose to humble himself to humanity and then to servanthood and then to the cross. The invitation of this day is to humble ourselves. It may be some of you are being called to a season in the twilight and not the limelight. Sometimes in our lives we have to go through seasons of invisibility. One of those for young mums can be those first couple of years of a baby's life where you used to be out there doing all that stuff and you had that strong identity and now you feel hidden and invisible. It's difficult. It's a season of twilight instead of limelight. I remember being in a, a particular church and the preaching was so boring. It was boring as hell. I used that language advisedly. And, and I sat there saying, God, spare me. Why do I have to listen to this? Maybe you're feeling like this even now. <laughs> you, know, you know, when you're thinking, I'll have one wine gum every two and a half minutes and that will get me, you know. And, and the thing was, I said to God, and forgive me that for the pride that's in this, but I said, God, I could do better than these people. And the really bad thing was I knew that if I went to the pastor and offered to preach, he would have signed me up the next Sunday because he wasn't stupid. He was aware it was pretty tedious. And God said to me really clearly, do not push yourself forward. And I sat there for a year and a half, bored almost to death. But God had said to me, don't offer yourself, don't push yourself forward. And I've often reflected now that God gives me a lot of opportunities to speak all over the world, often to thousands and thousands of people. How grateful I am for that year and a half where I just chose to be in the twilight, not the limelight. That I was okay to sit and listen and not be the person on the stage. Humble yourself and God will raise you up. There's a call for some of us to gentleness afresh in our workplaces in our homes, in our marriages. So there's a whole bunch of stuff in there. But the invitation is to join Jesus on his triumphal entry as his captives. <laughs> captives of the humble, gentle Prince of Peace. And to walk with him spreading this beautiful aroma, not of empire and domination, but of humility and of the new world order in which the poor 
The last should be first, the poor should be raised up, and the mountains should be thrown into the sea. And so it'd be great to get the musicians back, if that's all right. Let's just take a moment. You've heard lots of words, not just in my talk, but those uh, prophetic encouragements that we had earlier. Words about God using the foolish things to shame the wise, about flowers growing in the sewage, about broken wings getting healed. And uh, so there's been a consistent message. And uh, some of us... The challenge today is to humble ourselves, to become gentler, to become more peaceful, to become less dominant, to be less powerful and more authoritative. But for others of us, we feel very little about ourselves. We feel very weak. We already feel very foolish. We feel very low and very dirty. And the message of this day is that you are qualified to be raised up and filled up and sent out by the living God. So let's just take a moment. What is the Spirit of God saying? to you today and then we're going to pray for some people.